And then the poet of our generation who said this, Vin Diesel, you have to live your plan A on any level. Make it a lowercase a if you have to, but live your plan A. Anything else belittles the importance of life. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I cannot be doing this thing alone, so let's check in with the co-host, Justin. What's up, man? I'm down here in Austin, Texas, getting ready to celebrate Turkey Day with my girlfriend's family. Going to enjoy a lot of good food all week, not just Thanksgiving. How about yourself? Well, I am just getting back from Nashville. I went down and visited my friend Alex with my girlfriend, Lauren. Just getting back into the swing of things before Thanksgiving hits. And speaking of booking some awesome trips, Justin, we have someone on today who knows a lot about books. And this is an author, M.K. Williams. I met her way back at a campfire, and she just had such an amazing story. She's an awesome person, and we couldn't wait to get her on the show. But I'm not going to give away her whole story. Take it away, M.K. I think the first time I got money from the Tooth Fairy, I have always been really good with saving and not very good at spending. So yeah, I've always just been that frugal person. I don't know if it was just seeing my mom having to put herself through law school and definitely struggling financially until she married my stepdad. If that definitely ingrained in me the sense of spending, having my own money. But when I was babysitting, when I was doing odd jobs in high school, any money I could get, I just wanted to hoard it and not spend it on anything which I think has benefited me now, like during high school, all your friends want to go out to eat. And of course you meet up at a friend's house, you're hanging out, y'all popcorn and mac and cheese and watching like TV and movies and you're hanging out and they're like, let's go to the mall and buy something to eat. And I'm just like, but we already ate here. So I was kind of the stick in the mud of my group of friends, which are all still friends today. So thankfully they put up with me and my cheap ways. And appreciate now that I can provide them with financial advice. But I've always just been a very thrifty, saving type person. And then I met Jason and he outdid me in every way in saving. So it was quite a match. So you obviously had, you know, this kind of bug early on in life where you were concerned about money, being frugal. Did that kind of mindset drive you to choosing a certain type of degree in college, like going after a high dollar value major? Yeah. So I majored in economics. I was going to major in math because I wanted to be a math teacher. And then my math teacher pulled me aside and said, you can't even show the work on your paper because I would just do it in my head. And she's like, you can't be a teacher if you can't show people how to do the work. So I was like, okay, I'll be an economics major. I'm going to be, you know, the first female fed chair, which has already been done. So that, that goal's crushed. (laughs) And I figured, okay, you know, I can go into law, I can go into politics. I really like economics. I always had the passion for writing, but I just thought because I didn't have very strong technical grammar skills that like some unknown authority was going to come in and be like, you cannot major in English. And also you are going to make no money majoring in English. So there were definitely two driving factors to pick the economics major, which at the time I thought would be super lucrative. And then while I was in college, I found that it was one of the most common degrees that people would get because it was very general. So I graduated in the 2010 class in the middle of the recession. So I really don't think any degree would have benefited me more financially than another. But this one was definitely a good foundation for the career that I had later working in marketing and analytics and CRM and all those things. So what was that first job out of college? Like, what did you start with? You had that economics degree. I'm guessing you didn't go straight into authoring or whatever the correct <laughs> term is for that. 
So I actually, I mean, I've been writing books ever since college. So that was always what I was doing on the side. But my very first job, I didn't get any interviews in Philadelphia where I was living. I didn't get any interviews where I wanted to be. I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to grad school, but I want to take time to apply. So I thought if I'm going to be unemployed, I should be unemployed in Florida where my parents live. So I moved down there. And within the first few days, I had call up USAA because I got my renter's insurance in Philly and I have to call to change it and say, I don't need it anymore. I live with my parents. And the person's on the phone. They're processing it. They're like, oh, we're hiring in Tampa. And I applied and I got the job. And that was actually how I met Jason because his friend started the same day that I did. So it was one of those weird things that just worked out. But my first year working out of college was working for an insurance company. So it was very informative and helpful, but not anything I wanted to keep doing. And what kind of work were you doing? And are you okay with saying like what your salary was or what the career growth looked like there? Yeah. So I was answering phones. I was processing. I bought a new car. I sold a car. I need an SR. People would be like, oh yeah, I need this added to my policy. And I was like, why? And they're like, no reason. I was like, that's if you get a DUI. And they're like, yeah, I got a DUI. (laughs) Um, So I was the person nobody wanted to talk to because they either missed their bill or they had to pay more for something. So I think that was why I knew it wasn't my passion. I was making 38K out of college, which was pretty good. And there was good trajectory. I mean, they were very good. Like day one, I had full benefits. I was fully vested. I mean, they take care of their employees. It was just nothing that I had a passion for. So I will praise USAA. I still have USAA as my insurance provider. They do a great job. I was just not in love with it. Yeah, it was not going to (laughs) work. So at what point you said you did meet Jason like immediately, who is now your husband, immediately when you went down to Tampa. Could you talk about that? And you said he outdid you in every way possible. What exactly does that mean? So I thought I was being super frugal. So I moved to Tampa. I just graduated from college. And thankfully, the USA headquarters down here is near the University of South Florida. And so my mom knew she like we went around looking for apartments and she was like, I know you're going to pick the cheap one on the college campus. And sure enough, I did because it was fully furnished. It was at least expensive. It came with all these things and it was really close to work. And so I meet Jason and I see that he's living in this house with a bunch of other people. And I was like, oh, he's being smart. He has roommates. He's being super cheap. You know, I think that's very impressive. And then I find out he owns the house and he's renting out the other rooms. And I was like, you're like a real grown up. <laughs> have things together. So he definitely outdid me in that regard in terms of being very frugal, out frugaling me with like groceries and everything else. So that was something we bonded over. And in some ways I've like admitted before, like in some ways it's a very like enabling relationship where like we enable each other to not spend. But I also think it's good because we understand the other person when like things come up about like, well, why aren't you buying this? Why aren't you doing that? Like we understand where they're coming from. So it's been very helpful. It sounds like y'all kind of naturally, you know, mesh together in that way where you're both already frugal. So like you said, you can kind of feed off each other. But do you have any advice for people, like couples dealing with these kind of things, especially if one person's not as full throttle about it as, you know, the other? I would say you just have to communicate. And I know that sounds like so cliche and it's kind of a generalization, right? Like, well, how do you communicate? That's like, actually say, I am afraid of doing X, Y, and Z because of X, Y, and Z. Because if you can have that conversation with your partner, then you're not going to be able to have any other conversations that are very important. And so kind of digging down into the root of like, well, why do I do this? So we definitely agree on finances, but there's a few other things. Like I had a lot of bad food habits that he was like, why do you just want to like eat cookies all the time? And I'm like, because they're delicious. Then I was like, because I remember when my grandma gave me this like recipe and, you know, like having those like breakthroughs or whatever, like it's tough. It's not fun, but like you have to communicate and you have to be open to the possibility that they're not going to be that rigid forever. Like you're going to work together. You're going to grow together. Okay. So you meet Jason, he's crushing it. He has this house that he's renting out to other people. 
What are the next steps? Like when you guys start to take things more seriously, maybe at some point, I don't know if you still do, this could be a future topic, combined finances and like, how did that whole path go moving forward? So we knew it was pretty serious, like pretty early on. And I made it very clear. I was like, okay, like these are the steps that I think we need to take that we know that we're ready to get married. And like, you cannot ask me to move in with you unless you understand that that's where that's going. Like, this is not going to be a, us being frugal thing. Cause that's what was my concern. They would be like, oh, let's just be cheap. And move in together because I had seen other couples who had done that to save money and they that was not where the relationship needed to go and it was horrible for both parties. And I was like, this has to be an intentional like relationship driven decision versus a financial driven decision. Once we got engaged, we started to really like combine our finances in the sense of I had my I thought was a super great Excel spreadsheet of our budget. And then Jason has his 30 tab spreadsheet. And I was like, you know what? You can just let's just use yours because I bow down to your Excel macro skills. So we were able to leverage that. We still have separate accounts. We never like merged all the accounts, but we consider it merged. Like we look at everything together and we end up looking at things monthly and quarterly. So everything is shared. So on like a macro level, just to give listeners some tips as far as this kind of relationship dynamic, what about when you're going out and since you do have separate accounts, like what about when you're going out and doing activities together and you have those separate accounts how do you keep those separate? Are you just like Venmoing each other after everything? Or are you just like, ah, you get it this time and I'll get it next time? Or We don't go out that often because we definitely enjoy spending the quality time together. And we found at restaurants, it was really loud. We were getting interrupted, you know, pretty often like, oh, do you need more water? No, we're fine. And things like that. So we actually do a lot of date nights in where like we'll make dinner together. So we don't go out often. And when we do now, we have whoever has the card that we need for travel points just pays it. And that's one of the things where where there's been months where like he has had more cards. I'm like, just let me know what you want me to cover or what, like, just tell me and then I'll cut you a check or transfer. Like, I don't care. And he's like, well, then you're going to have a card next month and you're going to cover everything. So I was like, okay, that works out. So it ends up just working out and we're pretty open about it. I do know some couples that do that where they split everything 50-50. And I would just say, whatever works for you, like find what works for you and go with it. Like we have been a little lackadaisical because we know in the end it's going to wash out because our expenses are so low and we kind of, we see what we're spending. There isn't one person who's like buying all this expensive stuff and the other one's like, that's not cool. Like we're very in line with what we're spending our money on. So it just, it comes out in the wash between who covers what. I love that. That's the most fi thing ever where you're (laughs) determining who pays for what because one person has a certain card trying to hit a minimum spend bonus. That's awesome. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of want to move forward a little bit. And so you had talked about a little bit briefly earlier, you've been writing since college. When did you see writing as an avenue where you could potentially make some money, you could maybe build some kind of a business out of it? So it took me a few years to really get comfortable with the idea of writing as a business. So I had this very lofty dream of, I will write this book and some publisher will on high come down and say, this is amazing. We're going to publish everything and you don't have to do a thing. I don't know why I had this lofty dream because that's not reality. So it took me a while. I wrote two books that will never see the light of day because they're just my first books. And at the time I loved them and I thought they were genius. And like I was ready for, you know, Steven Spielberg to call up and be like, we're going to make this a movie. No. So it took me a lot of learning, figuring out publishing three to four years of just learning writing, learning the business, and then finally saying, okay, like I'm going to self-publish because for me, like success is getting my characters out there so people can read the books and enjoy them and have that connection. And whether it's from this traditional publisher or from myself as a publisher, like the end result to the end user is actually the same. 
because self-publishing has gotten so advanced. So it took me about four years to do that. And at that point, the goal was not financial. The goal was more, this is my dream. This is my aspirational thing that I want to do because I noticed when I would have a rough day at a job and I would go home and say, I'm going to write the best novel ever to make a million dollars. That was the worst writing that I did because it wasn't driven by what it needed to be. It wasn't driven by the story. And so when I took the money part away from it, my writing got better. So after the first two books, then I was like, okay, I think I can bring the money aspect back in and actually be smart about how I'm publishing. And then I can make money, but still not have it entirely dependent on, I have to write a certain kind of book just to make money. So it was definitely a long learning cycle. And I'm still on that learning cycle. I learned something with every book that I publish, which I think is fun and enjoyable. And it kind of keeps things exciting between like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to try this out this time. And so other than having good content, like what do you do to move from just like kind of writing for fun to making it profitable? And I'm even thinking about from a self-publishing standpoint, all the marketing that's got to go into it, getting the book out there in all these stores. So the first book being launched, I had no audience except for friends and family. Like nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows what my book's about. Nobody cares what I have to say. So I started to work on making sure I had an author platform, which was having a website, being present on Goodreads. So I was much heavier on Goodreads and their organic marketing and even like paying for people to like add the book to like their to be read list at that point because it was very inexpensive. And with each book release, I've done more. So after my first two books came out, knowing that my third book was coming was Enemies of Peace, it's FI based fiction. So I was like, okay, like I wrote this book because I should write what I know. Like this is a story that I want to tell. And I was like, oh, and it happens to tie in with this community that I'm part of. And I think they'll like that. So that was a great platform for me to tell people like in the community, like, oh, you write books, what are they about? And I was like, aliens. And they're like, see you later. But when I wrote Enemies of Peace, they're like, oh, that sounds, that's literally up my alley because we're all in this community together. So that helped to grow my author platform organically. So in addition to having that now, you know, being on a podcast, having a YouTube channel, having my website, like all those different spokes of the wheel, definitely growing that organically over years. So to somebody who wants to start self-publishing tomorrow, unless you already have a huge following, it is going to be a climb, right? So you can either pay a lot of money in ads to have people discover you, which at the time I wasn't willing to do. I was like, I'm not going to put money in if I haven't seen the return yet. So that's why I had that slower organic growth versus like I could have just blown our savings on a bunch of ads on Amazon and Google and everywhere. And maybe that would have done well. But at the same time, it was my first book. So a lot of people look at that and they're like, okay, you have one book, you're untested, there's no reviews, like what's that? So I've definitely gone a more intentional route knowing that there are people out there who are able to, I want to say gamify, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like they look at all the different things that they're supposed to do and check off. But like if they already have a large blog platform, if they already have a large amount of followers, they're already ahead in that regard. Whereas I was starting from absolute zero. So I just want to pause on Enemies of Peace. So actually the first time I ever heard about you before I even met you, MK, was I think you were on the Choose Five podcast Mm -hmm. talking about Enemies of Peace. So I picked it up and I read it. And it was pretty cool how you kind of intertwined money into like, I feel like the reader doesn't really know that they're learning money lessons, even though they're learning money lessons. So could you just take like, I don't know, 60 seconds and talk about like Cynthia, the protagonist and the whole like meaning behind the book? Yeah. So I wanted to write a book about the feeling that I had of being an outsider, always feeling like whenever there was a conversation of money, let's go out to eat, let's go out to do this. Let's spend money on this. I was always the outsider and I wanted to write what that felt like from both perspectives, because there were times where then I would want to do something and people would be like, well, you don't like to spend money on things. And I'm like, okay, but this is valuable to me. So I wanted to kind of show two 
extremes. And initially I wrote it as a satire. It was much more absurdian as far as like how crazy Cynthia and Timothy got. And then I scaled it back. So my goal was that this would almost be like the fight club for our generation, that this is like a lot of very subversive messages in there that are hidden within it. Like everybody thinks fight club is a movie about Brad Pitt and, you know, Edward Norton just looking hot without their shirts on. I'm like, no, there's actually like substantive messages in there about materialism and culture. And so that's what I wanted this to be about. I wanted this to be a story where people are like, oh, it's like this tension between these two neighbors and who done it. But really, it's about all these messages that are layered in there. So for somebody in the Phi community to read it, they're going to get certain things. There's still a twist for them at the end. But for somebody who's not in the Phi community, isn't good with money, they're going to read it and hopefully think like, wait a minute. Huh. I wonder. So that was my goal. And the initial feedback that I got from people outside of the community was, I had no idea. I did not see that coming. That was really good. And I was like, that's what I wanted. I didn't want you to see that coming. So that was a lot of work and revisions to get there, but it was perfect. And so this is a fiction book, but how much of it is actually tied to like your real life? Like how many real stories did you get to pull into these books? I think there's a few like little anecdotes or like little scenes that I was like, okay, like I observed things happening and like the workplace or things like that, that I pulled in there. But I would say majority of my books are all fiction. Like none of it is like my life put in there. And I think that's like what a lot of people see in pop culture. Like if there's a movie about an author, they're just writing their life into the book. And I was like, that actually doesn't work unless you're writing your biography. So uh, most of my books have a base and like something I've experienced and a feeling. And then I put that character into that situation to get them to feel the same feeling, but it's totally different. So I think the only thing that was like something that actually happened, which is so funny. So when Jason was a kid, he actually sold his family games, like his board games on eBay. So one day, like this person just showed up at his parents' door and they were like, hey, we're here to see Jason for this board game. And they were like, that's our 12-year-old son. And he was selling like the family board games from the family room for money, like out to people. And he was like, that's how I made money. And his parents had to be like, you're not allowed to sell things that aren't yours. So that I actually wove into the story somewhere that like there's like a little wink to that. And I think so Jack Rychak is the one character. And that's like something that he did in his past. And that was like a little wink to the things that Jason did before when he was younger. <laughs> Because it was so cute. And his mom now is like, yeah, it's super cute now. I was so mad at the time because I was looking for this one game for weeks. And he knew he had sold it and he didn't say anything. So it was really cute. So I know we've mentioned the Phi community quite a number of times so far on the podcast today. At what point in your journey did you actually discover the Phi community? Because I'm guessing it wasn't 2010 when you guys met and you were doing all the right things. No, no. So we got out of debt. We were well on our way to Phi. We just didn't know it. So we got out of debt in 2012. So about the time we were about to get married in 2014, so early 2013 is when I found Mr. Money Mustache and it was like, treat your debt like your hair's on fire. And I was like, oh, this is really funny. It's really well written. And I sent it to Jason. I was like, but we did that. So, okay. And at one point as we were combining our finances, once we were engaged, one of us said like, oh, could we retire early? And we're like, no, 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 we'll never make enough for that. And we just kind of let it go. And then finally he came back around to it and found early retirement extreme And it was maybe five months, four months before the wedding that we like dove in. And I was like, we are not changing a thing about this wedding. It is planned. I am not redoing anything. But we definitely decided that Phi was the route that we wanted to go before we got married. So that was journey that we started five and a half, almost six years ago. So we've been on this for a while now. And that's been a huge growth for us because we were always looking for a community of people who were like us who were not just, you know, not spending, not spend, but not spending because there were 
other things that were more important to them and wanting to grow their wealth and things like that. So that was a huge benefit for us individually and also as a couple just to meet other people. So you don't discover fire until you've already, you know, been together, you already realize that you're both so good with money, you're both very frugal. So what did it actually change other than kind of knowing the terms to call it? I think it gave us a purpose. So once we paid off our debt, you know, that was our goal. I had my student loans, Jason had his mortgage. Once that was paid off, we were kind of just wandering. We were like, I guess we should try a new restaurant once a month. And I'll just buy things on Groupon for new hairdos and manicures and things like that, because that's what you do. And I think I got like the makeup subscription boxes. I was like, I don't know. That seems cute. I can afford it. And like, we were very clearly not getting joy from the things we were doing. We just assumed, well, this is what you have to do. And finding the Phi community helped us to say like, right, like this isn't what we want to be doing. We'd rather be focused here to be able to have that life energy back. And that's also where this idea of me becoming a full-time author was born from. So my assumption was that I was going to have to work a full-time job my whole life. I would just keep writing on the weekends unless... Again, this publisher from on high just showed up and gifted me a huge advance and said, we'll take it from here, which very rarely happens. So it was all kind of coming together like, oh, like if we pursue FI and we can have this wealth built up, then I can leave the workforce early to focus on my books and focus on my passion. So it all kind of coalesced into one big goal. So I would be remiss to take advantage of your author slash grammar slash just writing skills in general. Obviously, you have a lot of experience in the field. We have a lot of people who are just writing in any capacity. They could be writing in their day job. They might be a blogger. They might want to be an author someday. What are some general, you can either go like super deep and technical or you can take like a more broad approach, but what are some general things that you see that people are doing wrong when they're writing? Mm thinking that where they're currently at is where they should be. So if you are not constantly learning, if you're not constantly reading other people and learning from them, then you aren't doing what you need to be doing. So I would say my biggest job as a writer is to be a reader first, because I want to know, I want to learn from other people in their craft. You know, I, so I'm telling a lot of people, I'm rereading Harry Potter, the whole series for the third time. And a lot of people are like, Okay, Jason is like, why? You've already read it. But for me now, I'm reading it again. I'm picking up on things that she did to build the series. So as I am writing a series, I am learning from what she wrote to be like, oh, this is how she wove this in. And this is where this plot point came in here that she's going to bring up later. So I am reading it from a different perspective. One, I would read a book to enjoy. And then two, I would go back and read it to say, what can I learn from this? Like every time I read a Stephen King book, I notice things that he does with the buildup of the story and how he lays out the characters that I'm like, I see what you're doing. Okay, I can model something similar in my books. Obviously not the same plot or the same characters, but the same framework where I'm like, okay, I see how you're bringing things back in. So if you are writing a blog, you need to be reading other bloggers. You need to see what they're doing and learn from observing. Yes, you can have a conversation and hear those tactics, but you need to observe as well because some people aren't going to tell you, well, I do this, 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 and this. They're going to say, I put it together and it just flows because... That's like, if you listen to all these podcasts, they're like, well, I started a blog and then I made $100,000. And I'm like, there's a lot in between that you just didn't say. <laughs> so that's where you need to be an observer. And even if it's like, okay, I'm reading all the other blogs, I'm reading all the other books in my vertical, are you taking courses? Like I am constantly in a course for something, whether it is for publishing or grammar or just a masterclass from other authors, like I am constantly learning. And so if you aren't learning, you are falling behind. So that is one thing I would say that as a writer, if you're not improving, you're falling behind. So as we're on the topic of, of learning and teaching, we've already talked a lot about the, the fictional books, but what about helping out with the phylogy workbook and helping teach other people about finance? 
Yeah. So working with David for Phyology and working for Chooseify for their book has been super fun. So it was one of those things where I didn't realize how much I knew until somebody asked me the question because I was so I'm also pretty deep in like the independent author community. So in there, I'm like, I'm still learning from all these people. Like I still have so much to do. And so, you know, when Jonathan comes to me, he's like, Hey, like we want to write this book. What do we do? I'm like, silly. Here's all the things. And they're like, okay, can, can you help with that? And I'm like, yes, yes, I can. And you know, same thing with David. So it's been really fun to help other people because it's seeing their dream come true. Their dream of becoming an author of having their, their name on the book that they, other people can go and learn from that is so fulfilling and rewarding to be able to give that back to the community that, you know, we've been a part of for so long and that has given us so much, but just to see other people achieve their dreams. I mean, that's an amazing thing to do to have a part in and to feel their excitement and also feel their exhaustion. I was talking with an author last week and they're like, I'm already sick of my book. I'm like, you're going to say that 12 more times before this thing gets published. Don't worry. So it's exciting to help guide people through that process when I didn't have a guide as I was navigating it. So it's been really fun to bring it full circle and help other people out. So speaking of helping other people out, I know that just recently, or maybe you can just help us out with the date here, you quit your full-time job and now you're a full-time Well, well, you can explain it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I left my full-time job in sports marketing. So I'm a full-time author and independent publisher. So author is easy. I write books and they're out for people to read. And as an independent publisher, I am helping other people self-publish their books, which seems like, well, then they're not self-publishing if you're helping them. But I am because they are still the publisher of record. They're the author of record. They own all the rights to it. I am just literally helping them get from point A to point Z by saying, do this, press this button here, go here. Don't forget about this. Remember when we did this a few months ago, this is why we did it, you know, helping them understand it. So that way when that journey is done, they can come away and say, I understand what I need to do now. I have everything that I need. And it's been really exciting to see how it took off. So the idea behind me leaving was like, a year and a half in the works, like I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. So I had to start to treat my business of being an author like a business and not just a hobby anymore. I had to treat my time outside of work as like, okay, this is time to work on this business of helping other people publish. And what is that going to be? And what are the levers I need to pull to make that happen? So that was really exciting. And I feel like it's coming full circle because part of the reason why I made that decision was I got the opportunity to help work with Chooseify on their book. And then 48 hours later, Jason and I went to Hawaii and while we were in Hawaii, we saw Doug Nordman, military guide, and we were talking and, you know, he's talking about, you know, the fog of work and just talking about author things and book things. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like for as much as I loved my job at the time, I was like, this is what I want to be doing. And now he's actually going to be publishing a book with Chooseify. So I get to work with him all the time. So I was like, this is the perfect, like harmonious circle of things happening in the world because, you know, like he's part of the reason why I was like, all right, there is a fog of work. I need to get out of this. And then I get to help him now. Yeah, I know Doug and his daughter were working on that book. I'm actually excited to see that one come out, even though I don't have any kids. I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic. But anyways, I'm sure there's other people out there listening who are considering writing a book, and they may want to do this self-published route, and they may want to lean on someone like you. So what does that pay model look like? Are they Should they be expected to like share profits, pay a one-time fee? like, Or maybe if you know, you're too busy and they go out to a different person, maybe some things you could tell them to, hey, watch out for this person trying to do this. Yeah. So I would say in general, if you're going to hire anybody as a consultant to help you with publishing, there are different models you can use. So if you're going to be paying somebody a royalty into infinity, like you are going to be working with this person for the rest of your life, you had better like them and trust them. So if there's any of those initial conversations where your gut's like, "Mm, I don't know, 
cut it off. There's so many other people that can help you. If you are looking at somebody just to hire as like a consultant during the publishing time, it really depends on their experience, how much work they're going to be doing and how much work you've already done. If you're going to somebody with like, I have a fully done manuscript, it's already been edited, everything's done. I just need you to take this and make Amazon sell it. That should be a very small fee relative to if you're like, I have an idea, let's make something happen. So that's two totally different ends of the spectrum. And then knowing people are probably, if they're thinking of starting out with this and they're like me when I started out, I was like, I don't have any money for this in my budget. Like this is going to be business. I need to have some revenue in order to spend on things. So I was definitely bootstrapping it to begin with. And there is a lot of information out there that is free to you from Amazon, from Ingram from all the major players that are distributors and publishers, as well as authors that are out there who've gone through this. So about a year and a half ago, I started a YouTube channel because I kept getting the same questions from people over and over. And I wanted to like write everything out. And they're like, how do I get published? I'm like, this is more than just a static email question, but okay, here's everything I can give you. And then back and forth. And I realized I was spending my precious writing time that I didn't have a lot of doing that. They weren't really getting an individual answer for me. And I was like, if I can just record this and put it on YouTube and send it to people, then they feel like they're getting this unique answer. I've answered it once and then I'm done. So I started a YouTube channel and I have content planned out for the next several years of answering questions that people have about this process. So if you're thinking about getting into this and you're like, I can't afford a consultant, I'm you know, in debt pay down or I haven't made any money from my writing yet. So how can I reinvest it in somebody to help go to YouTube? go to my channel, but there's lots of other channels as well. So you can get more information from people based on your genre you're looking at, your niche, very specific. You can drill down very far down that rabbit hole to learn everything about publishing. And there's so much more out there now. When I was first looking, I had to read through so many blog posts just to slog through to find the one answer I needed. I was like, how much do ISBNs cost? That's all I want to know. And I finally found the answer. So I have now condensed that on my channel to help people learn that so they know what's good, what's bad, what are the strategies that are out there when they might be getting, I don't want to say ripped off, but when they might be they need to have their antenna up that something could be wrong because there are a lot of people out there that want to make a quick buck on other people's dreams. And that's just the reality of the world that we live in. But there are a lot of people out there who are wanting to help because they know it. They can make it easier for you. And if you're a busy professional who has a blog that's taking off, who has a podcast that's taking off, and you just don't have the time to also write a book, somebody can actually help make that easier for you to have that other pillar onto your business. Something I think we should at least define here is what does self-publishing versus going with a publisher mean for someone who has no idea about the book world? So there's definitely a spectrum. So on one far end, there's traditional publishing. So you think of your big five publishers like Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, Macmillan. I forget the other ones. Sorry. But these are the big New York publishers where they will work with an agent who represents you. They will buy your manuscript. They will put all the touches on it. They will upfront all the costs and then... For some books every year, they will do the big marketing blitz. Their ads are everywhere. You're hearing about the book everywhere. It's usually James Patterson because he's a big seller. But you know they're going to put all the effort in, and then you as the author are going to make a royalty off of all those sales. So that's the publisher saying, I think that this could make us money. So together, we're gonna, we know all the things to do. We're going to take care of it for you. We're going to front all the money. And then there you go. You have your book out because you're the author, and you're just going to sit at your typewriter and write the rest of your life, maybe. And then on the way other end, you have self-publishers who are writing the book, finding the editors, finding the cover art, putting everything out there, formatting it, getting it out there. So when you think of the difference, so traditional is you offload 
a lot of the work to a big company that has the resources, whereas self-publishing, you are doing it all yourself or you are managing all of it yourself. So you can manage all of your Amazon ads or you can find somebody who can manage your Amazon ads, but either way, you're the one dealing with it. There isn't another person who's coming in to like, oh, we've got that. Don't worry about it. No, it's on you. And then there's this in-between, there's this hybrid indie publishing. And so that's what Chooseify is looking to build right now, where they are helping people publish their books under the Chooseify arm. And they are using the best of the indie publishing world to be able to make sure there's more favorable rates for authors, that there are there's more transparency into what expenses are going into it for the author to make that a good experience for them with a higher royalty rate as well. So less upfront, but actually getting a royalty. Whereas the traditional publishing, you have to, you get a lot of money up front. And then you'll see like pennies on the dollar for years. So there's a big range and publishing is constantly evolving. So even if somebody listens to this a year from now, things could be totally different. It's been a very tumultuous industry for the past decade or so as self-publishing has become a lot easier. Whereas a decade ago, like I would have had to contact an offset printer and order 10,000 copies of my book and sell them out of my house to be a self-published author. Now I can just go everything through a print-on-demand printer. They have the file. They just make it happen. Yeah, that's actually was getting into what I was about to ask, which is this new dynamic of, you know, ebooks versus these physical books. Like, how important is it that someone actually has a physical book? And then if so, you know, is there a way where they can talk a little bit more about how they can not order 10,000 books? They can just have the the physical book that they can use for kind of promotional stuff and get in certain places, but they're going to lean heavy on the ebook. <laughs> so, my first two books when they came out, I was like, I'm going to do ebook only because at the time I didn't like the self publishing print on demand print options. Even in the past three years, I've gotten much better. And I was also like, I like trees and I like the environment and people shouldn't get print books. So I'm only going to do eBooks and people are going to love it because it's going to be less expensive. And I like things that are less expensive. And you know what? The second I released Enemies of Peace and Paperback, I learned a very important lesson. People hate trees. They hate them. (laughs) They want everything in paperback. And so I have found that paperback has been my most popular format. I think a lot of people prefer to have the physical book. And I am an avid reader. If a library book comes due and like, okay, like I can wait six weeks to get it on ebook or I can wait two weeks to get it in large print, like hardback, I'm going to get it in large print hardback because I want to read it now. I will read any format. But I noticed that when I have to read on my cell phone for my e-reader app that then I'm worried about the blue light. Okay. I'm trying to fall asleep, but there's just light coming at me versus if it's just an old fashioned book, I'm more likely to fall asleep. So I have a personal preference for print books as well, but because I like to read a lot, I will read any format. So I have found that having multiple options for people has helped because everybody has a very specific preference for what they want. And also it makes you look more established. Like if you only have an ebook out, it's kind of like, well, why can't I get another option? What's going on? Especially now that there's so many methods to get your book on print where it's print on demand. You maybe have one setup fee or you have a small upfront fee to like get it formatted, but it's super easy. So it's one of those things with like, why wouldn't you, especially if there's no upfront cost to the author, there's a very minimal upfront cost to the author. And so MK, can you tell us about some of your latest projects? What do you have in the works? What have you done recently? What is there coming in the future? Yeah. So I just released The Infinite Infinite. That is my fourth published book. It just came out last week, or I guess by the time this airs a couple weeks ago. So that is a sci-fi adventure novel. It follows Nina Marks, who wakes up in a parallel universe. And at first things seem better, but then she realized she was kidnapped there and she has to get back in 24 hours or else 
the way to get back to her universe is going to be closed. And she doesn't know physics. So she has to find people to help her. So if you like Michael Crichton or The Man in the High Castle, then you will definitely like The Infinite Infinite. And I'm actually working, because it's NaNoWriMo, on writing my next novel, which is going to be a prequel to Nail Biters. So I am all things science fiction right now in writing and publishing. So. And on the Infinite Infinite, is this part of a series where somebody needs to read something before they jump into that one? Or is this one they can just jump in right away? It's the first book of a new series. So I'm working on the next three books in the series coming up. So this is the first one. So you've not missed anything. So you'll want to read it now. So when the next book comes out, you'll be ready. Awesome. All right. Well, hope you get as big as like JK Rowling and we can brag that we had you on in the beginning of this series. I can dream. I can dream. Me and Joe. <laughs> can't wait. Okay. So MK, where is the best place where maybe it's someone who wants to be an author? Maybe it's someone who wants help and learning about writing. Where's the best place people can contact you and know more about you? So several places. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram at one, the number one MK Williams. I am on YouTube. If you look for MK Williams, my videos will pop up that are about all things publishing and self-publishing. So you can watch my videos. And if you comment, I will write back or contact me through YouTube. I will write back and answer your questions. My website is one MK Williams. I'm the one MK Williams, except that I actually found another author named MK Williams, who we now follow each other on Instagram, but he's a dude. That's how you're going to know that's not me because he looks like a dude and I, I look like not a dude. So that's how you know. <laughs> Awesome. And then one thing we always ask our guests is what is one tangible tip for people who are on their path to financial independence? So I was thinking really hard about this one because I was like, oh, I have so many ideas and tips. So the main thing is you need to have a plan. You need to have a vision or a goal. So whether that's doing J.D. Roth's personal mission statement or you're going to do what Scott and Taylor Rickens did and playing with fire where they list down the 10 things of what they want things to look like, you need a plan. So sit down and make your plan. And then the poet of our generation who said this, Vin Diesel, <laughs> you have to live your plan A on any level. Make it a lowercase a if you have to, but live your plan A. Anything else belittles the importance of life, which who knew Vin Diesel was so deep, but also like don't live your plan B, don't live your plan C, live your plan A. So make your plan and then live it. So that's my advice. Awesome. <laughs> I love the Vin Diesel quote. This generation's the best poet. <laughs> yes, the philosopher. Okay, MK. Now it's time for the most exciting question and most important question of the podcast, of course. And this is the wild card question. And you might have not known this. And we actually do this. It's completely random. Justin has no idea what I'm about to ask. I don't even know what I'm about to ask. I'm so scared. MK, you ready? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. What is the most outlandish or crazy thing that after going through maybe a few edits of any of your books, this could be a book you started writing in high school that you had to take out and you're like, this is just too out there. Okay, so in Enemies of Peace, because I said it was pretty absurd and it was like a very satirical book there. I was going to have a whole scene at the end where, so, okay, so spoiler alerts, if you haven't read it, stop listening here. Okay, so at the end, when the house is about to collapse, I was literally going to have them running in trying to like grab things and like yelling at each other, like, don't bring this, bring this. What are you doing? Don't forget that. Like literally just having them be like super absurd and like trying to grab things as their house is crumbling and then fighting with each other because they had a horrible relationship. But I decided, I was like, this is too weird. This is too far-fetched that like, who can actually run back into their house as it's crumbling into a sinkhole and exploding? Nobody. Like, you can't do that. So I had to take that out. But that was like very funny to write, but I had to take it out. Well, maybe someday we'll get the extended cut version of that where we can, you know, get some alternate endings and things or, you know, maybe a choose your own adventure style. You know, that'd be good. Yeah, that would be, that would be very fun to go back and release some of the extended. I have to find it. They're all non-edited. So I'd have to find that old <laughs> stuff. But yeah. 
Well, MK, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, definitely learned a lot today about publishing that I never knew about. And I'm hoping there's some listeners out there who are considering writing a story and this will motivate them to do so. But just thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. That was a pretty interesting episode, Cody. I mean, I didn't even know that there were fictional books out there about financial independence. What did you think about the episode? Yeah, man. Like I mentioned in the beginning, I was not only excited to have MK on because she's part of the five community, but because she's in this unique subset where she does have this book, Enemies of Peace, that's like a five fiction. And not only that, but she was able to actually monetize a passion where a lot of people are kind of scared to make that leap. She even knew from the get-go going into school, she studied economics because she knew or she thought that was her ticket to making a bunch of money down the road. But then she kind of takes this leap where she is an author. She said she was writing books since high school, since college. But now she's been able to turn that passion into an actual career. And I just love when I see people going out there and taking those types of leaps. You know, I think it's another thing where you can see there is you can kind of leverage a passion that you have to try to make some money, whether it's, you know, through starting a business to help other people write their books that allows you to continue to do your passion. So if you, you know, you find something that's a passion, that's not in and of itself super profitable. You, there's probably a way that you can find, you know, an angle to make it profitable so you can continue to practice that passion. And one more thing I really liked about this episode and MK in particular is that she kind of bridges a gap that, you know, you or I, Justin, may not be able to bridge. Of course, there are people who listen to this show that might not be the most gung-ho about personal finance. But if someone like really doesn't want to hear about personal finance, they're probably not going to be tuning into our podcast or any other podcast for that matter. But MK is kind of bridging the gap where she has this fictional book about financial independence where the person reading might not even know that they're getting these money lessons. And on top of that, I mean, she's still doing the stuff we're doing. She helped Choose Five publish their recent book. She helped David from Phyology publish his Phyology workbook. She just has her hand in so many different pots spreading this message of financial independence. Yeah, I mean, an interesting idea might be that, you know, Christmas is right around the corner. A great stocking stuffer may be to get this book for one of those family members or friends that you've tried to bring up financial independence to and they just weren't having anything to do with it. And so you just kind of sneak that book in and say, oh man, this is just a great book I've been reading if you want to check it out. And they might not even realize they're about to learn some things about financial dependence. might be a little more approachable for them. But one thing that... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And so something that MK said this episode that really stuck with me was that the best way to become a really good content creator or just better in any capacity, it could be in your job, could be in your social life, is to become a good listener. And you never learn anything by talking or doing. You learn by listening and observing. MK was saying she goes out and deliberately reads authors. She's on like her third round of Harry Potter, but not because she wants to like reread the storyline. She's looking for these little cues and all these little things that JK did to build up the story. So she is an observer. She is a listener. And that's what she uses to grow her skill set. So no matter what your passion is, no matter what your job is, Take that piece of advice and just start listening and start observing more to better yourself. Yeah, it's a great call to action, Cody. I mean, we could always do a little better about listening and seeing other people's points of view through life. So a great call to action. And if you want to learn a little bit more about MK and the things she's got going on, these books that she's writing and how she's helping other people self-publish their own passion projects, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash MK. And if you want to join an awesome, all-inclusive financial community where you can come ask questions, learn, just share your journey, you can join our Facebook group at thefyshow.com slash community. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you get a chance, those five-star reviews really help us get on great guests like MK. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Fi Show.